Sermon text this morning, Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 31. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy in the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Heavenly Father, we come before you today acknowledging that you are the living God. We pray to you, we sing to you because you are the living God. I pray that you would open our hearts to hear from you because you are the living God. pray that we would understand more about you, understand more about our state before you, that we would fear you more, that we would love you more, that you would make us more like Jesus, and that we would not count his blood a common thing. In his name we pray. Amen. So last week's passage emphasized the importance of holding the confession of our hope. And that hope that that the writer of Hebrews has been talking about is the hope that Christ will actually take away our sins. Not just forgive us our sins, not just leave us as we are, but somehow he's going to close his eyes to to the damage and destruction that's caused by sin. No, he actually came to take away sins. He came to make a holy people. He came to make a people who walk differently than the world around them. And yes, we're not completely separated from our sins until glorification, until Christ returns and corruption puts on incorruption. But Christ is saying now, Now our hope is is that He takes away sins. That He does it in this life. And He says, therefore, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Not just for the purpose of hearing the Word. Not just for the purpose of worshiping God. But for the purpose of exhorting one another to love and good works. Because we have an expectation. An expectation that the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse from sin. It will take away sin. So we exhort one another in the church with the expectation that they will hear. Because Christ came to take away sin. He didn't just come to forgive it, to ignore it. He came to take away sin. And now we come to a very frightening passage. Because now the writer of Hebrews is going to say the opposite side. He's going to argue the other side, which is, if we don't think Jesus Christ came to take away sin, understand that means you're saying Jesus Christ is like a bull or like a goat, not like God. That his, his sacrifice was as useless and as meaningless as all the sacrifices that the Jews did and that Israel did. Those millions of animals that they spilled, they poured out the blood and none of them did anything to solve the problem that men have, which is they're separated from God by their sin. And the blood of bulls and goats 
did nothing to rectify that. They would go in and they would make the sacrifices, and the next day they would make the same sacrifice, and the next day they'd make the same sacrifice. And the ne- There was never end to the sacrifice because the sacrifices didn't solve the problem. But Jesus Christ came, and he sacrificed. And his sacrifice was such that it was complete. That it doesn't need to be repeated. It's complete and doesn't need to be repeated because He takes away sin. So He's going to make a parallel argument. If it was effective, the change with the new covenant, if it was effective to take away sin, He starts first with the individual and says He will sanctify you because Jesus Christ's blood actually works, not like the blood of bulls and goats. But then it will also sanctify the congregation, which is why you're to exhort them to love and good works. He makes the same parallel in this passage, where he starts with the individual. It starts with the individual to say they have no hope left, because if Jesus Christ can't fix their sin problem, there is no fix. Then he also goes to the congregation when he references Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 isn't about individuals. It's about the congregation of the people of God, the people who call themselves the people of God. How his wrath will fall upon them, how it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's not just saying individually, and it is a fearful thing individually, but he's saying corporately. When God judged Judah, they were faithful there. That's why they were told to flee to the mountains, flee to the hills, run when you see the judgment, when you see the the besieging of Jerusalem. But you don't think it affected them? Of course it affected them. He delivered his people, but it doesn't mean there's no effect. And so we should recognize that he's saying that there is individual judgment, but there is corporate judgment too. If you treat the blood of Christ like the blood of bulls and goats, all that's left is an expectation you'll be judged because there's no hope. There's no freedom from the bondage of sin. They have no power over sin. The gospel It just makes them see their sin, but doesn't deliver them from their sin. But then the same thing happens with the congregation. Look at the churches in America. They're filled with these people that go every week. And they say that they're praying to Jesus Christ. They say they worship Jesus Christ, but he doesn't deliver them from any of their sins. They just continue in their sins. Understand, that's who God's greatest wrath is toward. That's who God's greatest wrath is toward. A lot greater than Deuteronomy 13, where he says, I will wet my glittering sword, and I will kill them all. And this passage says, yeah, but that's nothing. Nothing compared to what Christ will do to those who are a body of people who say they believe in Christ, but they don't believe that the blood of Jesus Christ actually cleanses from sin. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When when Israel left 
Egypt. They treated their salvation from Egypt as a common thing. They said, we have no responsibility to God. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep up these sacrifices, but we'll go worship other gods. He warned them over and over again. But they had no power to turn from their sins. All they could do was keep sinning. Because the blood of bulls and goats does not take away the sins of the congregation. And specifically, there's an allusion to the Day of Atonement when they would sacrifice a bull so that the high priest could go in and then they would take two goats. One would become the, sa- the scapegoat that would be sent out into the wilderness. The other would be slaughtered so that the Israel, the nation of Israel could be atoned for. But their sins weren't taken away. It didn't work. And then God says, look, if you treat the blood of Jesus Christ the same way, if he would destroy Israel, if he would cause them to be a byword and a watchword throughout the whole earth, he would cause them to be a proverb, even with the war that's going on in the Middle East right now, that is a testimony of how serious God took Israel, who did not know God, who did not have Jesus Christ, did not have the testimony of the crucifixion. He still is judging them 2,000 years later. And this passage says, you think that's bad? You think that's bad? If that's what he did for somebody who disparages the blood of bulls and goats, what do you think he'll do for those who disparage the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? If you think what's happening in the Middle East, 2,000 years of war is bad, that's nothing compared to what he will do to those who treat the blood of Jesus Christ as a common thing. And that should cause us all to tremble because we live in a country where that is exactly what happens. It's not as much anymore, but it used to be 70% of the people went to church every week, but yet we murder millions, tens of millions of babies. Which is more offensive to God? Israel, ancient Israel, or the United States today? Don't deceive yourself. We're much more offensive to God. And look what he did to Israel. This should cause us to tremble. This should cause us to be filled with fear because God is living. He is real and he is living and he really judges. And it starts with the church. Churches that have no expectation of holiness. No expectation that their members will be different than the world around them. They get the first judgment. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. They get the first judgment. Because that's what, who God is. That's who God is. He cares. His purpose in sending Christ was to destroy the works of Satan so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Is that what the church in America is doing now? Or is the church in America causing the name of Jesus Christ to be the same as the name of bulls and goats? We all know the answer to that question. And we shouldn't think, well, but we're Christians. We actually believe That when you're born again, you will walk in the newness of life. We actually believe these things. That doesn't mean as our nation gets judged that we don't rightly receive judgment because of it. Because we have a duty and an obligation to the people around us. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
the faithful in Israel when Assyria came in and wiped them out. They were affected. The faithful in Judah when God sent the Roman army to wipe them out. They were affected. Don't think we won't be affected. When we let the world around us rot and decay, don't think we won't be affected. With that, let's go to verses 26 and 27. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. So it starts with if we sin, if we sin willfully. When we think of the sacrifice of Christ taking away sin, as he just spoke about writing the law in our hearts and our minds, that he gave us power over sin. He gave us a heart that allows us to turn from sin. We shouldn't think that that makes us sinless. As John wrote, he who says that he is without sin, the truth does not abide in him. So the qualification is important, and the qualification is if we sin willfully. So what does it mean to sin willfully? And I think to understand that, we really need to understand the doctrine of free will. Not the unbiblical doctrine of libertarian free will, which means you can choose to do whatever you want. That's clearly and blatantly false. It's ridiculous in your own life. You know, if you go, oh, I want to go on vacation to Hawaii, and you don't have the money enough money, you know you can't do it. Your free will is constrained everywhere. Everybody knows this. But then we pretend like in Christ or in God, your free will reigns over everything. That's a ridiculous doctrine. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a biblical doctrine of free will. We all have free will. But obviously the Holy Spirit, by replacing our heart of flesh with the heart of stone by writing the law on our hearts and on our minds, is changing our will. It changes our emotion. It changes our our reasoning. It changes how we look at the world. All of a sudden, we can actually see the world as it is. And so salvation is a change of will. So that instead of freely choosing to sin, we now are free to choose to walk in righteousness. Our will is no longer in bondage to sin. It's no longer in bondage to a a desire from the center of our heart to rebel against God, even if we lie and say that's not true. It doesn't matter. When you say, I get to redefine who God is, that is exactly what it means. And so salvation is a changing of the will. He opens our eyes. He opens our ears. He opens our understanding. And because of His work... We then will to seek Him. God doesn't torment us to come to Christ. He makes it by changing our mind and changing our heart. He makes us desire to come to Christ. Romans 2.4 Do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearing, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? God opens our eyes to see God's goodness we can all of a sudden understand His mercy. We can understand how sinful our sin is, how much it's deserving of His wrath, and how He made it so that we can, we can be saved. Through that, we willfully choose, because He opened our minds and opened our hearts and changed us. We willfully choose to follow Him. 
So when it says here, if we sin willfully, he's making an allusion to Psalm 110. As we've been going through Hebrews, it's very clear. Hebrews is a, is a commentary on Psalm 110. He just said that Jesus Christ, because his sacrifice is effectual to take away sin, that, that all his enemies will be defeated, which is a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. But here he's making a reference to Psalm 110 because it's translated voluntarily in, in the New King James. In Psalm 110, verse 3, your people shall, excuse me, volunteers, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. But that word volunteer could be translated, you will it, which is what it's translated in the King James. And here it could be translated, you're a volunteer. If you voluntarily sin, it's the same concept in both places. So in the one place, he says, when you're saved, what the blood of Jesus Christ does is make you a volunteer to serve God. But if what you do instead is volunteer to serve sin, if that's what you're presenting your members to do, is to sin, then this applies to you. You know, over and over, he's with the priesthood according to Melchizedek, making all his enemies his footstool. And what he does, what the blood of Jesus Christ does, is he makes it so that you volunteer not to sin. You freely choose not to sin. So these are opposites. When we're dead in our sins and trespass, our default position is to sin. Yes, there's constraints in the world. Yes, there's painful results of sin that constrains us. Yes, there's... there's Our sins compete with each other. Our sin of pride competes with our lust of the flesh. So there's many people who never commit adultery, not because they don't have lust of the flesh, but their pride of life stops them. And so God in His mercy creates this system where even sin prevents other sin. But the heart is to sin. The heart is to lie. The heart is to deceive. The heart is to rebel against the living God. But when we're saved, he makes his people to be volunteers. We desire to do right. Yes, we still have the old man that we have to wrestle with. We still have the temptations to sin. But we have a will that is to be a volunteer to do what's righteous. I think it's best described, and obviously since it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's best described in Romans 7, 15 through 23. Where Paul says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then, I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, he's saying, I know in my heart that the law is good. This is what I want to do. But yet at times, I don't do what I'm supposed to do. But I'm not saying that the law is bad, that it's evil. He's saying the opposite. The law is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So he's saying when you're born again, when you're given spiritual life, you have this will this, to be a volunteer to do what God would have you to do. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. But For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. This is why we sin. 
Because even though we know what God would have us to do, and we desire to do what God would have us to do, we don't fight the flesh right. We don't fight it with enough zeal. We don't, we don't put to death the works of the flesh. So we have these two wills that struggle. That's not true for the unbeliever. The unbeliever doesn't want to desire, doesn't want to do what God says. The whole point of, of like 2 Corinthians 3, where they won't look at the law of God, because all they see in it is condemnation, that in Christ the veil is taken away so that you can look in the face of God and you can see the glory of God. Those who are saved want to do what God says. That's the nature of salvation. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do that, what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So when in Hebrews 10 where he's saying, for if, for if we sin willfully, he's talking about where you don't have a heart to obey God, where you don't have a heart to practice righteousness, where you're a volunteer to sin, not that you're fighting against sin, because every Christian, until we're glorified, fights against sin. And we can deceive ourselves, we can lie and say we fight against sin as we go and sin over and over and over and over again and never change. That's actually volunteering. It's volunteering to sin. But what he's talking about here is those who don't have an inward desire, they don't find a delight in the law of God according to the inward man. That's who he's talking about here. When we're saved, we're spiritually resurrected from being dead in our sins and trespasses. But since we haven't been physically raised from the dead, we still have to deal with this body of, of sin. Saved delight in the law of God according to the inward man because the slavery to sin is broken. They're no longer a volunteer to sin. But yet, at the same time, they still sin because there's another law in their member until corruption puts on incorruption. So we, do, we know what we want to do. We want to do what God says, but we don't do what, what we say that we're going to do. It's categorically different than sinning voluntarily. So the picture in this verse is the man who wills not to do what is good, like Paul did, but the will to sin, the will to rebel against God. They don't want to do what God's law commands them to do. So God, through His Spirit, makes all who are truly saved volunteers. He makes it so we don't sin willfully. Yes, we sin, but that's because of the other will that exists in our members. So we don't perform the good that we would like to do on as consistent of a basis as we would like to do it. But those who have a renewed will, they don't volunteer to sin. They don't practice sin. They practice righteousness. Because Christ came to deal with sin. So the saved practice righteousness. That is the pattern of their life, is that they walk in righteousness and not sin. So this passage is a warning to those who aren't desiring to do what is right, nor desiring to submit to God according to the inward man 
but want to do what's right in their own eyes. That's who this passage is about. But don't think, oh, that's, that's people who are far off. Because this is after we have received, after they have been given the knowledge of the truth. If you willingly, if you voluntarily sin, if you're not killing sin in your life, if you're not dealing with the sin in your members, if sin has not been taken away so that your desire is still to sin, even though that you have the knowledge of the truth, then this, this is a warning. And it's easy to deceive yourself, to go, no, 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 I've turned from this sin, and I've turned from that sin, and I've turned from that sin. When it's really pride that you don't want people in the church to see you sinning in that way. How many people have we seen over the years where they're doing that, where they look so holy and righteous, and then as soon as they're out from the, the view of the church, they go right back to sin. Their desire was always to sin. It was just the sin they wanted was for other people to say, oh, there's a man of God, rather than to actually be a man of God. You know, the knowledge of the truth, there's a general call, the call to preach the gospel to all men. And I think that's the knowledge that's talked about here, not the knowledge because God has revealed himself to the inward man. But this is talking about why Christ came, what he did, the sacrifices on the cross, the pouring out of his blood to seal the new covenant. If you understand the new covenant, but Christ hasn't truly saved you according to that covenant, even though you think he has, but you're treating his blood like it's the blood of bulls and goats and really does not take away sin, then your sin remains. And that false belief does nothing for you. I think that's who it's talking about here. Those who made a profession of faith, those who call themselves Christians, those who say, we're the people of God, just like Israel said, we're the people of God. So God said, I will wipe you off the face of the earth. So think about it. You're in that state where you say you've been a Christian. You say you've been saved. You say you've been born again. You're a member of the church, but yet you have no power over sin in your life. You have no desire to walk in holiness. You have no desire to walk in righteousness. You're practicing sin rather than practicing righteousness. That's who he's talking about here. And think about it, then there's nothing left, right? What's going to solve your sin problem? If Jesus Christ's death on the cross didn't solve your sin problem, your sin problem is unsolvable. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There's nothing left that can save you. If Jesus Christ, God, you believe this, you say that you believe this, that God took on flesh, that he walked among us, he was crucified, died, and rose on the third day, but yet he didn't rise to take away your sins, to deal with your sins, all you're left with is... There is no hope. There is no hope. Because if you read the Old Testament, you see over and over again, God is a God who judges sin. You read Paul, do not be deceived. He will render to each according to the deeds done in the flesh. Matthew 25, he will gather them and the sheep and the goats. And the goats didn't care for people. The sheep cared for people. The sheep sacrifice for people. Because God makes us volunteers. That's what salvation is, being made a volunteer. But if you don't have that power in your life, and you say you believe in Jesus Christ, where you left, 
There's no sacrifice for sins. If you don't see Christ's sacrifice as being truly a sacrifice for sin, a sacrifice that will actually take away sins, if instead you treat his sacrifice just like you treat it, just like the Israelites treated the sacrifice of the bulls and goats, then there's nothing left to pay for your sin. You'll be damned and there's nothing you can do about it. There is no escape. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrifying place to be. Because all you have is a certain fearful expectation. If Christ can't take away your sin, all you're stuck with is, when you say you're a Christian but you haven't been born again, you're in a far worse place than you are if you go, I'm not a Christian. Because if you haven't been born again, you're still a slave to sin. You are not a slave to righteousness. You still have a will to rebel against God. And there's no hope left. Because Christ is the only hope for your sin to be dealt with. And if you think you're a Christian and your sin's not being dealt with, you become hopeless and all you have is a fearful expectation of judgment. That's all that's left. Because there's nothing that can solve your sin problem. Because you've treated the blood of Jesus Christ like the blood of bulls and goats. All you're left with is that my sin's going to be judged. For God is a God who judges. God is a righteous and just God. Think about it. He had all those millions of animals die over over 1,400 years. All that blood poured out. Like an unbelievable amount of blood that was poured out. Anybody that knows these things recognize God takes sin seriously. He is going to judge sin. And so if your sin's not being taken away through the blood of Jesus Christ, through, through being born again, being washed in his blood, if that hasn't happened and you have knowledge of the truth, you have knowledge of the gospel, all you have to know is, but God judges sin and I'm a sinner that has no power over the sin. The sin has power over me and all you're left with is, I'm in big trouble. All you're left with is a certain fearful expectation of judgment. Because God will display his wrath against sin. If you're not being cleansed, if you're not being sanctified, God says, Jesus Christ's sacrifice sanctifies everyone he believes. If you're not being sanctified, all you can understand is that God's judgment is going to come against you. He is going to destroy you. Look at what he did to Israel. And fiery indignation... Every unbeliever, whether they know they're an unbeliever or not, has an expectation of judgment. But when you profess to be a believer, when you say that you're a Christian, and you add to that expectation of judgment, the blasphemy of God by saying you're a Christian, saying that your sin is participated in by the Holy Spirit, You add to the expectation of judgment, you add the fiery indignation on the part of God. His wrath burns hot against those who take his name in vain. God warns that his wrath is against those who take his name in vain in a special way. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The unbeliever has an expectation of judgment. 
But the unbeliever who professes to be a believer, they also have fiery indignation. They have the wrath of God kindled against them because the whole point that Jesus Christ came for is so that the knowledge of the glory of God would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And here you are distorting and twisting and making it so that God's name has no glory. You're twisting the knowledge of the glory of God. You are an enemy against God that is far more effectual if you're a spy than if you're a soldier against him. And so his wrath is different. He will not hold those guiltless who take his name in vain. God's wrath is hotter against those who falsely profess his name that they add to their other sins. They add the name, the sin of blaspheming the name of God. And that fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. If you're willfully sinning, after you came to the knowledge of the the truth, you are an adversary of God. You are against Him. You are at war with Him while you pretend like you're following Him. He came to take away sin. If your sin's not being taken away, if you're not being cleansed, if you're not being sanctified, you are His enemy. But you're pretending like you're in His camp. In every war, they treat spies differently than they treat soldiers. If you have a spy, you kill the spy. If you catch a soldier, you put him in a POW camp. Because it's a lot worse to be a spy than to be a soldier. And God's saying, that comes from me. You pretend like you're part of my camp. You pretend like you're part of my people. You take my name, but you take it in vain. You say it does not sanctify. It does not cleanse from sin. You're a spy amongst the people of God and his wrath is far harsher against spies than it is against soldiers that are against him. If in your heart you don't want to obey God, stop naming the name of Christ. Because it won't help you. It just increases the fiery indignation that will devour the adversaries. God doesn't want people to make false professions of faith. There's no blessing in that. All there is is a greater cursing. Hebrews 10, 28 through 29. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? Anyone. We have to understand why his fiery indignation is different towards false professors, those who say they're Christians but whose sins have not been dealt with, who have not been sanctified, their sins have not been taken away, which was the promise of the blood of Christ. The writer explains why his indignation is so much worse by comparing it to Mosaic law. The response to rejecting the laws, I think, is... You know, this is the rejecting the law of sacrifice to bulls and goats. So I think specifically here, the focus is you're rejecting the ceremonial law. If you rejected the ceremonial law, you were put to death. How much more when you reject? Not the shadows, but the substance. So anyone who rejected Moses' law, I think this is specifically about rejecting the worship of God, about rejecting the type was worthy of death. Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 8. If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is your own soul, it secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. 
neither you nor your fathers or the gods of the people which were all around you, near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. If you rejected the worship through the types and the shadows and say, let's go serve other gods, they were to be killed. They were to be killed. That's how seriously God took dishonoring the false worship. Not the false worship, but the the worship that didn't have the ability to take away sin. The ability that you could do this and you could go through the motions without knowing God at all. Which so many of the Jews and so many of the Israelites did. And he says, look, that's worthy of death. Just rejecting that blood of bulls and goats that doesn't take away sin. That they die without mercy. They were not to let any relationship get in the way of that. Even if it was a close relative. Even if it was your closest friend. Like if it was your brother, your wife, your child. You were specifically instructed, do not show them mercy. Your eyes shall not pity them. You shall not spare them. You shall not conceal them. If God is saying that just for disparaging the type, just for disparaging the shadow, what do you think he'll do for those who actually disparage Jesus Christ? The punishment was, when the facts were known, was to put them to death. And remember, Deuteronomy 13 goes on and says, if a city goes after idolatry, the whole city was to be destroyed. It was to be burned completely to the ground. You weren't allowed to take any spoil from it. It was to be burned completely. Everything in it, all the people, all the goods, all of it was supposed to be burned to the ground and it was never to be allowed to be built again. That's the picture of fiery indignation that he's referring to. And he's going... But that's nothing. That's nothing compared to the fiery indignation of God to those who say they're Christians but are not. If that's what he did to those who were Israelites, who were just sacrificing bulls and goats, what will he do to those who disparage the name of Jesus Christ? dies without mercy on the testimony when it was known and it met the standards of biblical evidence of two or three witnesses. When two or three witnesses knew it was true, when they made the charge and other people joined with them and say, you know, basically, he suggested the same thing to me also. Or they investigated the city, as it says later in Deuteronomy 13, and found that they rejected the commandments of worshiping God when they had the witnesses, when the facts were established, they were supposed to kill. They were supposed to kill them all. They were supposed to destroy it all. Their eye was not to pity them. This was a picture of God's wrath against those who blasphemed the name of God. But that blasphemy was nothing like the blasphemy of the new covenant. It's on a different order of magnitude. And if that's what he required... For that blasphemy. What does he require in the New Testament? What's he going to do in the New Testament? Of how much worse punishment. If this was the punishment in the Old Covenant. The Covenant had no power to save. The Covenant that was a covenant of works. And nobody could be saved by it. If the punishment was that hard for breaking that covenant. Think about the punishment of breaking the better covenant. 
right, in, in Hebrews 8, 9, 10, he's been talking about how the new covenant is so much of a, better of a covenant. How much worse will it be when you break that covenant? If the punishment was that hard, harsh for breaking a covenant of works, how about the covenant of promise and treating it like a vain thing? A better covenant has stricter punishments when the covenant is disparaged. The worst punishment means like aggravated, aggra, aggravated vindication would be another translation of it. Meaning, if this is what he would do to somebody who just makes the worship of the temple look bad, what's he going to do to somebody who makes the worship of the Son of God look bad? It's going to be much more aggravated. He's going to be much more angrier. He's going to be much more filled with wrath towards those who disparage the new covenant. God's wrath, understandably, is stronger about those who treat Christ as a bull, whose blood cannot take away sin, than he does about somebody who just mistreated or ignored the sacrifice of bulls. So do you suppose, we're supposed to think about it. Consider it based on what we know about God, how he wiped out Israel and sent them into captivity, used the Assyrians to spread them through the known world, how he took the nation of Judah and brought them from a mighty nation down to 4,600 people, as it says in the end of Jeremiah, how he brought them back just to wipe them out in 70 AD, so no one else, so no one would even buy them in the slave markets in Egypt. They couldn't even give them away. That's what the wrath of God looked like to those who broke the old covenant. What do you think it will look like for those who break the new? What do you think it look, will look like to those who say we're the people of God but don't act like the people of God in the new covenant? If that's what he did to them, what will he do to us who have far more revelation, who have a sacrifice that can actually take away sin? Remember, God is just. And if that's what he did to Israel and Judah, how much war, how much... Worse, do you expect the punishment to be towards false professors in the church that have been given far more than was given to those in the Old Covenant? How much more do, worse punishment do you think he will be thought worthy? That word worthy is like fit or just. How much, what do you think the sentence should be? If that was the sentence... In the Old Testament, is that you have a city that goes and worships another god, that you gather everything together, you kill everybody in it, you burn it to the ground, and you make sure it's never rebuilt. If that is what is just to do under the Old Covenant, under the types and shadows, what would be just for God to do to a church that does the same thing? Understand, that's what he's saying. That's the point he's making. Or an individual, it applies to both. If that's what God is saying was just under the Old Covenant, how much worse will the judgment be under the New Covenant? What would the fit punishment be? The writer is trying to get you to think if death and damnation was the punishment for rejecting Moses' commandments about how to worship God, what's the just one for rejecting how Christ said we're supposed to worship Him? the effect of Christ's sacrifice. How much worse do you think it will be for those who have the substance instead of just the shadow? 
those who have trampled, I think it's, again, to get the right picture. Think of all the sacrifices they made, especially during Passover, for instance, where everybody came up and they came up with their lamb and they all had it slaughtered at the, the temple, all these, all these goats. And they were all slaughtered in the same place and all the blood was poured out and there would have been guts and now everything would have been there. And there's all these people that are trampling it. They're trampling through that blood. They would be sloshing through blood. That's what it would have been like. They trampled the blood of bulls and goats. And God doesn't say, don't trample the blood of bulls and goats. But compare that to what he says about Christ. If you trample on the Son of God, you can trample on the blood of bulls and goats. He didn't care. It was appointed. Every goat they killed, they collected its blood, they sprinkled about the altar, and then they poured it out at the base of the altar. There would have been an enormous amount of blood in any of these festival weeks. Which one would God be upset with? Trampling on the blood of bulls and goats or trampling on Christ? The one was actually commanded. He wasn't that upset, but how much more do you think you'll be worthy of punishment if you're treating the sacrifice of Christ as a meaningless thing? if you treat it with the disdain that they would treat the blood of bulls and goats when they were, when they were walking on it to lead their own sacrifice in, when you, do, when you trample Christ underfoot, you're trampling the only salvation, the only solution, the only hope. How much more do you expect fiery indignation to be poured out on those who do that? How fit do you think the punishment will be for those who have trampled the Son of God underfoot. This is the picture of Christ being trod on. Remember, earlier in chapter 10, he said, Jesus Christ came to take away the sins of the world so that all his enemies will be defeated. And so when he talks about trampling the Son of God underfoot, he's flipping it, just like he did volunteers. You're a volunteer to sin instead of a volunteer to walk in righteousness. And now he talks about trampling the Son of God underfoot, which is the opposite of what it says in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. What he says is, I will make my enemies my footstool. I will trample them underfoot. So how angry do you think God will be when you trample underfoot him rather than being trampled underfoot? You think God's just going to look at that and go, oh, that's funny. He makes a profession of faith, but he has no change in his life. Oh, that's, that, at least he made a profession of faith. At least he prayed a prayer. Isn't that so exciting? No. No, may it never be. He says, my wrath is against those people far stronger than it was against those who, who brought the false altar into the temple to worship at it. It's worse to do that than it was to bring the altar of Damascus into the temple. Christ came to trample his enemies underfoot. That's what he came to do. And when we go, oh no, he doesn't trample his enemies underfoot, and we trample him underfoot, trust me, he tramples his enemies underfoot. You don't want to be in that situation, because he tramples his enemies underfoot. It's a promise of Scripture. When we not only don't treat him 
don't treat him as the one who's defeating his enemies, but we treat him as the one that we can trample on, that we can use his name to say, oh, we can, we can get out of any muck and mire we want to. We'll just trample on Christ and continue with the same desire for sin. Understand what the fitting wrath, what worse punishment is fitting for that behavior. Encounter the blood of the covenant. Jesus Christ came to shed his blood to seal the new covenant. There were promises. The promise that God would send the Holy Spirit, which would cause us to walk in his commandments and statutes. That we would have the law in our hearts and our minds, but instead we don't think it's any different than the Old Testament system. If he was that serious about the blood and about their sacrifices, what do you think he is about Christ? And believing in Christ's sacrifice... If we treat this blood of Christ's sacrifice like the blood of bulls and goats, understand God's wrath. Understand how angry he is. Understand how he will be the avenger of his wrath. He promises in the new covenant that he will make a people who are volunteers. That he will make his enemies his footstool. When you reject that and you go back and say it's just like the Old Testament... The testament that couldn't save, couldn't sanctify, when we treat the blood of, of Christ like that, what do you think his wrath is like? By which he was sanctified. And so again, this is saying the person who professes Christ, who claims to be set apart, who claims to be part of the church, who is... In real ways, being part of a church sanctifies you. It constrains your sin, except in really horrible churches. But that sanctification was just like Israel was sanctified. Just like they were set apart. Not effectually, not, not to make them be a people of God, that, oh, that they had a heart in them to obey my commandments. They, the, being Israel didn't make you like that. But Christ does. He makes you a volunteer. By which he was sanctified a common thing if you're treating the blood of Christ like the blood of bulls and goats, which says that it can't really do anything, that somehow this atoned for me, this made me right with God, but it didn't change me. Which is exactly how they treated the blood of bulls and goats. If you treat the blood of Christ like it's common, like the blood of bulls and goats, understand what you're doing. You've insulted the Spirit of grace. Remember the Holy Spirit. He was sent by God as an act of kindness to his people, so he would not be ashamed to call them his people. When we insult the Spirit of grace, when we say that the giving of the Holy Spirit doesn't change our attitude towards sin, when we say it doesn't change our behavior because our attitude has changed, it's an insult to the Holy Spirit. It's an insult to the mercy of God. It's an insult to the sacrifice of Christ. We're, we're fighting against the second person of God and the third person of God. We're, we're, we're in rebellion to them. We're bringing down their name. What do you think God's going to do about it? Don't think he'll just sit back and say, yeah, they, they did all the sacrifice, but they didn't walk in righteousness, so I'll destroy them off the face of the earth. But now, because they're saying, Jesus Christ, this magic name that will stop me from doing anything, that's not what he says says Jesus Christ, belief in Jesus Christ is transformative. You must be born again to inherit the kingdom of God. 
and to pretend like you can be transformed without walking in the newness of life is an insult to the Spirit of grace. It's an insult to the Holy Spirit. Verses 10 through 31, or for chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the the hands of the living God. For we know him. And notice he's been using the second person plural, we, throughout all of this. He's not saying, you know, the writer of Hebrews isn't saying, look how holy I am. You guys better watch out. He's saying everybody better make sure. Everybody better make their calling and election sure. Everybody better make sure that they're not saying that the blood of Jesus Christ has no effect. By using we, he's saying all of us are supposed to consider it. And here he's saying that all of us need to consider what he's saying, not just about themselves. Because he is talking about the congregation here. He's he's talking about the collective when he quotes, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 32, which is not about individuals. He's saying those who have the knowledge of the truth, those who know who God is, those who know that all deserve the wages of sin, which is death, that all have sinned against God, all deserve damnation. So we know him who said, and God makes it very clear that he will judge those who designated his people, that are designated his people. He says, vengeance is mine. And so it's important to understand the context. When God says this, he's referring to the Song of Moses as, is null red. The Song of Moses is the last thing that Moses does, the last thing he teaches them. And it says in 31 that he made them all memorize it and sing it so that they would not forget it, that they would get it down. And this song is about how Moses exalted the name of God. But in the future, Israel would not. This is right before Moses dies. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. They received water from the rock. They received manna from heaven. But once they went into the promised land, they would forget it all. And they would go, we don't need God. So first he would withdraw his face from them and they would descend into idolatry, which provoked him to wrath. As it says in Deuteronomy 32, 23 through 25. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poisons of serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within for the young man and virgin, for the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. He doesn't wipe them out yet. He just sends warning. And the reason he doesn't wipe them out is for the sake of the nations around them. Not for their sake. He has already decided that he will destroy them. It's not for their sake that he doesn't destroy them. It is for the sake of the nations around them. But that didn't mean he would never destroy them. This is a verse that the beginning of is quoted here. Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine in recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. They treated the blood of bulls and goats as a common thing. They treated the presence of God in their midst as a common thing. Him being at the tabernacle and then the temple. 
So he says, I will avenge my good name. Their foot will slip in due time. Their calamity will be at hand. I will recompense. He will avenge his good name. I will repay, says the Lord. He will recompense. As it's translated in Deuteronomy 32. They won't get away forever with rejecting God. And remember the context of this in Hebrews is if that's what God did for those who didn't worship God the way he said through the commands of the ceremonial law they didn't have thankfulness of God to God in his in their presence how much destruction he would bring on them how he would scatter them across the face of the whole earth to be a proverb and a byword to the nations. Right? Like I said before, this is why Hamas brutally murders Israeli babies in their cribs and kidnaps grandmothers and Harvard students go, that's wonderful, that's wonderful! This is what his wrath looks like. It doesn't make the Harvard students right or Hamas right. No, they're evil. But this is what God's wrath looks like is what we're supposed to say when we see that. He will repay. He will recompense. For 1,400 years, they said they were the people of God and they distorted what God was like to all the nations around them and God is still judging them as a nation for it. God appointed it so that we could look at it and say, this is what God says. I will repay. This is what he meant when he said it. It's not subtle. The Holocaust was not subtle. The wars in Israel are not subtle. God, over and over and over again, the anti-Semitism that's throughout the whole world, it's not subtle. Go to the UN, and the UN constantly votes against Israel. Why? They're this weak little people that mean nothing in the world. The reason they do it is because God goes, I want to make sure you understand. This is what I do to a people that say they're mine, but their hearts are far from me. And how much worse do you think it will be in the new covenant than it was in the old. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Look how bad it was then. Look at what's happening in the world. And it will be a lot worse for those who claim to be part of the church, but their hearts are far from the church. For those who claim to be a church of Jesus Christ, but they're nowhere near saying our sin has been dealt with. He's still repaying. He's still avenging the disparaging of his name 2,000 years later. And the writer's reiterating these things because we're supposed to see how much worse our punishment will be if we profess to be in the new covenant, in the better covenant, in the covenant that had power, not the covenant that was based on the blood of bulls and goats, but the real covenant, the covenant that is based on the blood of Jesus Christ. we act like they acted how much worse do you think he will repay us he repaid them by torturing them for 2,000 years for disparaging the blood of bulls and goats what do you think his judgment will be like those who profess Christ and again just to make sure his points driven at home how he will avenge his wrath how he will cause their foot to slip in due time he says the Lord will judge his people worth quoting a longer section so that we can understand what the judgment looks like. Deuteronomy 32, 40, 
36 through 42. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining, bond or free, he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you and be your refuge. Now see that I, even I, am he. And there's no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Christ came to his own and his own would not receive him. So God did this. How much more, how much worse do you think the punishment will be for those who mistreat Christ compared to those who mistreat the Ark of the Covenant, who mistreated the blood of bulls and goats? The Lord will judge his people. Those who he designated as his people, those who claim to be the people of God, the They had Jehovah as their God. But treat him if he's just like any other false God. He destroyed them. He promised and said their foot will slip in due time. There will be the day where I will wipe them off the face of the earth. I will scatter them among the nations. They won't be a nation anymore. And he does it justly. He did it righteously. It was a good thing. This was not merciless on the part of God. This was just and merciful because they had been misleading the nations as to the nature of the God of all creation. So how much more just is it? How much more merciful is it for him to do this to a church that that professes false belief? Don't think that this isn't God's justice and mercy. It is. That's why he's vengeful. It's not like somehow that's at odds with his being merciful. He's merciful because when the church professes a Christ that cannot take away sins, you're making everybody have a fearful expectation of judgment. You're making a hopeless society. And that's where we are. That's where the church in America is. It's really important to note, this is no longer talking about individual judgment. This is collective judgment. Just as with the exhortation in the previous, in last week's passage, where it's like, sanctify yourself. Make your assurance, full assurance, that you're walking in the hope of Christ, the hope that He will take away sin, and therefore go and exhort one another. He takes it from the individual to the collective. He's doing the same thing here. He's saying, you should have a a fearful expectation of judgment. You should recognize the fire indignation that's about you if if you say that you're Christ, but your heart is far from Him. And then He does the same thing. He says, but understand, He does this to collective too. He does this to congregations. Look at what He did to Israel. Look at what He did to Israel. The judgment works the same way. Any person would be killed by violating the Mosaic law, but then the whole city would be burned if they did. God's using these examples so that we can see how God acts. Individually, we are judged. There's real consequences for sin, for the sin of 
of claiming to believe in Christ when we act willingly sin. But so are congregations. They're judged as well. As a nation, we're in the midst of serious judgment because the church collective does not want to say Christ came so that you would desire to keep the law of God. The first fruits of creation are the Christians because all of creation will have all sin removed and where he starts is with those who believe. And the church wants to go, no, the law, we're not under the law, we're under grace. We're not under the law as a taskmaster. We're under the law as guidance to peace and joy, goodness, kindness, mercy, self-control, all those things that are the fruit of the Spirit. The law is not contrary to the Spirit. It's what the Spirit leads to. It leads us to keep His commandments and His statutes. That's what the Holy Spirit That's the promise of Ezekiel. That's what the Holy Spirit does. We need to understand as a congregation, as a a nation, that when the church, the American church, wants to say, Christ did not, he came to abolish the law, rather than he came to change your heart so you desire to keep the law, understand the wrath that we should expect. We should expect greater wrath because we have greater knowledge. And let's be serious. I mean, I go to Nigeria, and in Nigeria, there's all these seminarians that, that don't understand any of this. But they also haven't been taught. They don't have the knowledge. In America, look at our history. We have the knowledge. We, we stand far more guilty than they do. And then make sure you hear these verses. It is a fearful thing. We should have a real fear of God because God is a judge that will rightly judge every man. The purpose of every man is to serve God. Most serve him as a vessel of dishonor. A few serve him as a vessel of honor. Those who are a vessel of dishonor that claim to be a vessel of honor, they will serve God by reaping fiery indignation, by reaping greater judgment Claiming to be a vessel of honor does not make you a vessel of honor. A vessel of honor is one who God is cleansing. He is sanctifying. He is removing his sin. He starts by giving you a heart to walk in righteousness. Fear God so you don't fall into that worst situation where you claim you're a vessel of honor when you're really a vessel of dishonor. Because God will glorify himself by reserving greater judgment for those who blaspheme his name. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That word translated to fall is more negative than the English translation. The other places that it's used is like a sheep, a sheep that falls into a ditch and can't possibly get out. That's what the word means. You fall into some place that you have no power to escape from. You can't get out of it. It's a fearful thing to have that happen where you fall into the hands of God who you know he has fiery indignation against you. You know that he is going to judge you. Don't add to your judgment by professing Christ when you have no power over sin in your life. Jesus Christ came to take away sin. It's a fearful thing to be trapped in the hands of God without any possibility of escape by yourself. 
And he's the living God. In the hands of the living God, as he said in Deuteronomy 32:40, if I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, when God says, I will do it, he does it because he is the living God. He does live forever. He will pour out his wrath. He will pour out worse judgment than was ever received by Israel on those who claim to be his, on those who claim to be Christians, on those who claim that they have a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. He's not passive about those things. He's the one who kills. He's the one who makes alive. It's not like they're just happening. All the judgment in the world, all the death, all the sickness. That's the promise. He's the one that does it. And all of it's because he's a living and active God. Don't think you can ever escape the wrath of God on your own. When you claim to trust in him without being given the faith to truly to believe, to have a heart that truly desires to serve God, you've set yourself against the living God, and he will repay. Let me give you some applications. Remember back in Hebrews 6, when the writer of Hebrews is saying that they should move on from the foundational doctrines of the faith, because they just wanted to repeat the same basic things over and over again. Salvation by faith and not of works. Repentance from dead works. Baptism, the doctrine of laying on of hands, the doctrine of eternal life, the doctrine of eternal judgment. And they just keep teaching those same basic doctrines over and over again. And he says, think deeper thoughts. Go deeper. And why go deeper? Because it actually splits those who are briars in your midst from those who are fruitful in your midst. He exhorts them to pour out the water of the word like on a field that the the briars will spring up and go stronger, but so will the good crop. And you'll be able to tell the difference by pouring out the water. Understand what he's saying here. What he's saying here is if you don't want to do that, if you just want to have the briar so that you have a briar field with a few wheat plants here and there, you should expect his judgment. You should have a fearful expectation of his judgment. You should expect him to pour out his wrath. He said in Hebrews 6, make sure you're bold in preaching the word because that's that's how you get a people that are the people of God because those who aren't the people of God will flee because they don't like the message. They don't like the expectation. They don't like the idea that God transforms people. That's what salvation means. He's saying it's good to divide the church, to drive off the unbelievers. That's what he said back in Hebrews 6. And now he's saying it again. Look, his wrath is against where you you have a mixed multitude, where you don't care if there's unbelievers there. You're fine with that. Look at how big our church is. God says the opposite. Don't join in other people's blasphemy. Exhort one another to love and good works. Push people to do what is right in the sight of God. Find out by their response whether they actually love God or not. Because it's good to drive off the unbelievers. It's good for them too because as long as they're sitting in church thinking that they're saved, thinking that they have put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, but their heart's really far from Him, making them realize they're not part of the church is their only way they can be saved. Other than that, there's nothing left. If there's no Christ, there's nothing left. So it's merciful to drive them off so that they can see there is still hope. 
their sins can be forgiven. The power of the sin in their life can be broken. Jesus Christ's blood does take away sin. As long as you all have them in, their church, in your church going, Jesus Christ's blood takes away sin, and they go, it didn't take away my sin, there must be no hope. And all they can expect is judgment. The body of Christ is to be an unleavened lump. We're supposed to care enough about one another to make it an unleavened lump, which means doing church discipline, but way before church discipline. It means that you exhort one another to love and good works. Another application, it's better to be an unbeliever that knows he's an unbeliever than to be an unbeliever that thinks he's a believer. The one is treating the blood of Christ like the blood of bulls and goats, which means you're the opposite of what God saves us to be. He saves us with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But the unbeliever who's a professor of faith in Christ isn't bringing the knowledge of the glory of the Lord because his testimony through his life of sin is saying that the blood of Jesus Christ has no power. It's saying it's just like the blood of bulls and goats. And blasphemy of the name of Jesus Christ spreads. As Paul warns us in writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5, For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. That's the person who is the unbeliever that has no power over sin in their life, but claims to be a Christian. Paul is saying, turn away from people like that. You don't want to join in their judgment. You don't want to join in their wrath. Make your calling and election sure. Make sure you're not them. It's better to know that you're not saved. Because being unwashed and thinking that you're washed just leaves you with a sense of fearful expectation of judgment. It leaves you with a sense of no hope. Knowing you need to be born again has far more hope than thinking you've been born again, but you still have no power over sin. Another application, you're not saved unless you delight in the law of God, according to the inward parts. God changes us. He writes his law in our hearts and our minds so that we delight in his things. It says that in 2 Corinthians 3. It says that in Psalm 110. Christ is not your Lord unless you want to do what he says, unless you want to keep his commandments. No one is treated as Lord unless you're submitting yourself to obey him. That's what it means to have Jesus as Lord, to be saved. You cannot be saved and not present him, not present your members to him, for obedience. You can't be saved. Unless you're a volunteer to produce, pursue righteousness, you're not saved. Another application. It's easy to forget how many people died in the Old Testament just for violating a picture. There was much judgment in Israel because they were not, only, because they were not treating the type with the proper reverence. We should love those around us those who we come in contact with that call themselves Christians, but their hearts are far away from God, which can be seen by their behavior. They have no desire to obey God. It's mercy to them to declare to them of the great wrath that God has on those who make professions of faith, 
but don't believe in the power of Christ to take away sin. God cared about the types, treating them like a vain thing. What do you think he thinks about treating the blood of Jesus Christ as a vain thing? How much more does he care about the substance which is in Christ when his name, the Son of God's name, is blasphemed? Another application, the things like the destruction of Israel, all those times and judges where they would disobey and then God would have another people rule over them and then they'd call on God and a a judge would come that would free them and would give them victory. All those pictures of of Saul, the madman, ruling and chasing David. Israel being wiped out by Assyria. Judah almost being wiped out by Babylon and taken into captivity. And then a remnant flees to Egypt and is destroyed there. All that judgment, all of it, was just a picture so that we could understand what God does in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. It was just a picture so we can understand how much more severe... God will treat those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ but have no fruit. You know, there's so many people that go, oh, I like the God of the New Testament. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. They should read this passage because it's saying it's the same God, only His wrath is worse in the New Covenant. Because you've added to the, to the rebellion against Him, you've added the blasphemy of the name of His Son, and you've added the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. How much worse do you think He will judge that? Don't look at the Old Testament and go, oh, look at how God judged all the time. I'm glad he doesn't do that anymore. No, he does more now, is the promise of Scripture. Another application, make sure that the blessing of, blessings of God's ways don't make you forget the God who established them. You're probably more likely to not train your children to understand that their upbringing is not like the upbringing of the people around them. But that doesn't mean they're saved. That doesn't mean they're right with God. That doesn't mean because they've seen sin removed that it means that that they will just go, this lifestyle will work. We need to be telling them who Christ is. We need to be telling them that He's the one that takes away sin or they'll be just like Israel. I remember in Malawi, there's churches there and you know they came from Presbyterian roots and they baptized their babies and it only takes one or two generations before there's no believers in the church right because you baptize unbelievers you bring them into the church they become members so you get a membership very rapidly that's filled with unbelievers but they all think we're the righteous people of god and god's wrath is upon them and his destruction's upon them but they just go no we're the righteous people of god we need to recognize and teach our children no they have to they have to go to christ because he's the one that relieves sin And not just say, because our life is better than the people around us, we're right with God. That's not good enough. The fact that your upbringing has taught you, children, just the fact that your upbringing has taught you not to do things that the people around you will do, doesn't mean that you've been reconciled to God. It means His ways are good, but don't forget that it's the God who appointed those ways. It's easy to forget that He is God and then His wrath is more upon you like it was with the children of Israel than it was upon the nations around them. It's easy to reap the benefits and forget the God who directed the benefits and commanded obedience is how you get those benefits. 
another application, we should ask ourselves the question, how do we trample Jesus Christ underfoot? How do we treat his blood as a common thing? What sin do you have in your life that you don't believe that God has given you the power through Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit to overcome? What are you treating Christ's sacrifices? Christ's sacrifice to be just like the Old Testament sacrifices. That instead of a sacrifice that works, that accomplishes what it was made for, that destroys the works of the devil, that takes away sin, that it's just like the blood that you sacrifice and then you feel better about God, but your sins aren't dealt with. Christ didn't come to repeat the old covenant. Christ came to establish a covenant that works that takes away sin, that cleanses those who believe. How are you trampling Christ underfoot and treating him like he's not that, that he's just like the old covenant sacrifices? And the last application, the Lord will judge his people. Judgment is not just individual. That's the context. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember that this afternoon as we break bread together, as we have a time of fellowship. Remember why God gave that time of fellowship. He gave that time of fellowship so that we could exhort one another to love and good works. That was verse 25 of Hebrews 10. That's why he gave that time. That's why we're here. And the way that you end up with the church that's under the judgment of God so that its vengeance towards the church is worse than his vengeance towards Israel with all the destruction of Israel... It starts with not caring if the church is filled with believers or not. And the testimony of not caring whether the church is filled with believers or not is, will you exhort to love and good works? Do you have an expectation that the power of sin is broken in those you are covenanted with? If you do, you exhort to love and good works. If you don't, you should have a fearful expectation of judgment. Because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you. We thank you for this passage. It's a tough passage, but we pray that we hear and learn the things that we should hear from it. Let, it, let us see how much you care about your name, how much you care that you receive glory, how much you have appointed us here to do that, and how easy it is for us to make it about ourselves and to make it about, well, yes, we do this, but what's the big deal? instead of recognizing that the point you came, the reason you came, was you took on flesh and dwelt among us, you were crucified, you rose the third day, so that you could destroy sin in the world. Lord, we look forward to that day when you return, and the last enemy is defeated, which is death. Lord, give us the zeal to be destroying the works of the devil now, starting with our own lives, starting in this church, starting in the community that you have placed us, so that you receive the glory that you should receive. For you are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. May we do the things that we should do, so that your name is glorified. We ask this in your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.